The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. She tried for about seven years to place me with various houses and with various projects, and it just never happened. And finally, she said, you know, I, I, I really think you need to stop writing for a year, and um, which I thought was just a devastating thing to say. Um, and she said, you know, all I want you to do for a year is just read, because you don't know who you are as a writer yet. And to figure out who you are as a writer, you have to know who you are as a reader. And honestly, I thought it was just like a complete brush off. I thought it was her, you know, just kind of very polite upstate New York way of saying, I don't want to work with you anymore. <laughs> right off into the sunset. Bye. Um, but I, I took her advice. You know, I was so disheartened at that point that uh, I, I said, yeah, maybe a year off is the best thing to do. So I just went off and I read for a year and I had asked her, I said, well, what am I supposed to do at the end of the year? And she said, you'll know, which I thought was actually kind of a smart ass response. But I, I, I looked around at the end of that year and I did know, I knew exactly what to do. And welcome back to The Writer Files. This is your dutiful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Award-winning and New York Times bestselling author, Deanna Rayburn, spoke to me about how she still feels like a debut author, why she doesn't read reviews, and her new contemporary thriller, Killers of a Certain Age. Deanna is the author of 19 books, including the award-winning New York Times bestselling Lady Julia Gray series, as well as the USA Today bestselling and Edgar-nominated Veronica Speedwell Mysteries and several standalone works. Her latest is Killers of a Certain Age, described as a witty contemporary spy thriller perfect for fans of Killing Eve and Ocean's 8. An instant New York Times bestseller and an Amazon Best Book of the Month 2022, BuzzFeed said of the book, this Golden Girls meets James Bond thriller is a journey you want to be a part of. Deanna graduated with a double major in English and history from the University of Texas at San Antonio. Stay tuned until the end of the show for a preview of the audiobook excerpted courtesy Penguin Random House Audio from Killers of a Certain Age by Deanna Rayburn, read by Jane Oppenheimer and Christina Delane. In this file, Deanna and I discussed why her agent told her to stop writing for a whole year, what it feels like to get that first three-book deal, how she came to writing older women doing kick-ass things, when she turns into a feral author in her pajamas, why writers need to trust their inner voice, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. 
Uh, don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. Well, welcome back to The Writer Files. I am very honored today to be joined by award-winning New York Times bestselling author, Deanna Rayburn. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. On the uh, birth of your latest, this is the launch uh, pub date. It is. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, what, what's the vibe over there? Uh, the vibe is crazy right now. Um, <laughs> I am <laughs> I am actually in a hotel room in St. Louis doing about 12 interviews back to back and um, trying to keep my voice together and um, my answers coherent. And uh, so... <laughs> Hopefully, I will. I will be worth your time as a guest. Oh. Yeah. Well, you know, we could try something different. You could just type your answers into the chat, and I could just read them out loud. <laughs> Would that be? <laughs> just kidding. Um, yes, of course. We we want to hear your lovely voice, and um, we can't wait to dig into all things writing and your latest. Um, this fantastic uh, standalone novel, Killers of a Certain Age, which I can't wait to talk about. But. Um, yeah. So aside from the craziness, let's let's talk about your superhero origins a little bit because you have had this prolific career with quite a few uh, successes and and just lots going on. But I want to talk about all the things and kind of wind the clock back a little bit to, um, yeah, kind of how you have ascended to uh, bestselling author and take us back, if you will. I know I understand that you studied that you had a double major in English. Uh, and history in college. But yeah, talk about kind of like how your life became uh, one of a, a prolific uh, series writer. Yeah, uh, right now I'm having kind of an out-of-body experience because you you talk about these things and it sounds like I have this great successful career and I'm like, who, me? Um, <laughs> because somewhere in my head, I'm still like a debut author, which is mm. ridiculous because I've written 19 books. Um, so at some point you think I would get past that, right? Um, yeah, I, I double majored in college in English and history because I always knew I wanted to write and I always knew I wanted to write historical fiction. And then I also got my teaching certificate because I wanted to eat uh, while I was figuring out how to get published. And um, I was a terrible teacher. I lasted about three years before I noped on out of that job. Um, and it, I wrote my first novel when I was 23 and uh, sent it in over the transom and it has never been published. It lives in a box in my attic and it's terrible. Uh, but the editor I sent it to said, yeah, I'm not publishing this. It's 120,000 words. And <laughs> I published 80,000 word novels. Nice try, kid. Um, but he also said, I think your writing is absolutely wonderful. And that kind of gave me the confidence a few years later when I had a better novel to go find an agent. And she tried for about seven years to place me with various houses and with various projects. And it just never happened. And finally, she said, you know, I, I, I really think you need to stop writing for a year. And, um, which I thought was just a devastating thing to say. Um, and she said, you know, all I want you to do for a year is just read because you don't know who you are as a writer yet. And to figure out who you are as a writer, you have to know who you are as a reader. Mm. 
And honestly, I thought it was just like a complete brush off. I thought it was her really, really suitor, you know, just kind of very polite upstate New York way of saying, I don't want to work with you anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right off into the sunset. Bye. Um, but I, I took her advice. You know, I was so disheartened at that point that uh, I, I said, yeah, maybe a year off is the best thing to do. So I just went off and I read for a year. And at the end of that year, and I had asked her, I said, well, what am I supposed to do at the end of the year? And she said, you'll know, which I thought was actually kind of a smart ass response. But I, I, I looked around at the end of that year and I did know, I knew exactly what to do because I looked at the books and they all had things in common. They were Mm. all structured as mysteries. They all had a historical setting. They all had a strong female central character. They all had a British sensibility and kind of a, a, a dry sense of humor to them. And I went, holy crap, that's a blueprint. That's a blueprint for the book that I need to write. And so I sat down and wrote that book, which took me two years. And I sent it into her. So by now it's three years since I've talked to my agent. I sent it into her and a week later, she'd read it and she called me and said, this is it. This is the one. And, um, and it was, um, it took her two years to sell it. But when she did, we got a three book deal. And then just a couple of months later, they came back for another three book deal. So I went from being a person who couldn't like get run over by a golf cart in the streets of publishing to a person with a six book, you know, six books under contract, which was a bizarre, bizarre thing. And I've been under contract and writing ever since I've switched publishing houses. Um, but I've, I've got two successful historical mystery series under my belt. And now I have, I have, uh, shifted gears just a little bit to do my first contemporary. And when I look at your catalog, it's pretty incredible to see how many, um, novels you've written since then and, um, novellas as well. And yeah, uh, a very cool story. And an inspiring one, but I think ultimately I want to talk about, of course, Killers of a Certain Age, and the reception has been like just amazing, don't you? Don't you think? I mean, how are you feeling about? It's bonkers. Yeah. It's absolutely bonkers. I mean, um, I knew that the buzz was different about this one because you get a feel in the publishing house, like you can tell when, um, whenever, and and my publisher is super enthusiastic and amazingly supportive and lovely with my historical series this was just kind of a a a whole bridge beyond that and i i knew things were building and then all of a sudden we you know we get word that it's going to be a book of the month selection and then the we started getting the trade reviews in and um i i think we're up to four uh, of those that have been starred. And yeah. so it's, it's just like, what? <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Um, it's really cool. It's a beautiful cover too, Thank I you. think. Do, oh my God. The, the, the Berkeley art department does the most stupendous covers. They do gorgeous, gorgeous work on my <laughs> historical series. And I thought, yeah, you're not going to top that. And then they come out with this gorgeous graphic, very, simple very noir, straightforward yeah. yeah very noir <laughs> but there's a pearl bracelet so yeah. it's amazing <laughs> earlier in the show i mentioned an invaluable resource for writers truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a diy manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing failing and trying again Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, 
where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Well, Colors of a Certain Age, and I'll just I'll, I'll talk a little bit about or the description here, is a contemporary feminist tale brimming with acerbic wit, featuring modern heroines who prove that age can be an asset in a world that often values youth over wisdom. But uh, yeah, some of these blurbs are incredible. Congrats on the Amazon Best Book of the Month, 2022. Um, had just mentioned, I'll quote, novels about trained assassins rarely address the retirement package. <laughs> um, th this sentence got me. It's very funny. Granny, get your gun because this novel, sharp as battery acid, fast as a bullet, and hilarious to boot, pits men against women, age against youth, technology against old school know how. And on top of that, illustrates an excellent use for a piano wire necklace. Oh, um, geez, that's great. See, I yeah. don't read reviews. So, I had, <laughs> okay. No, they, they will have review parties in an email when they come in, like, you know, when these starred reviews have come in. And yeah. my everybody at the publishing company emails my agent and my husband. <laughs> and they will all like hang out and isn't this great? And all they do is <laughs> tell me, oh, hey, Publishers Weekly came in, it's a star. Or Kirkus came in, it's a star. That's all I know. I never read them. And so they, they have these great celebrations without me. But that's really cool. I like that line. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Good, that's a good one. Um, yeah. And your peers have had so many great things to say about it. Um, but yeah, congrats on the work. And it's got to feel it's got to feel good to have a book that's uh, a standalone. And as, as the uh, description mentions, a contemporary. But yeah, uh, talk a little bit about the feminist piece, because you know, ultimately, I think as I'm reading about, you know, just the descriptions and, and the content, you know, ageism in publishing has probably been something that's, you know, been around since the dawn of publishing. But let's talk a little bit about why maybe now that it's more prevalent than ever, you know, isn't there this bright and shiny kind of literary phenomenon, lit literary phenom kind of uh, thing happening? You know, I... <sighs> I'm very, very gratified by the fact that this book came about because my publisher came to me and said, we, we just want a book. We, we think there need to be more books about 
older women doing kick-ass things. And we think you are the absolute perfect person to write one. <laughs> and I, I took that as a huge compliment. And they said, would you, would you be interested? That's literally the entire brief. <laughs> older women, something kick-ass. We don't care about any of the rest of it. You are free to do whatever you like. And I went off and I had to think about it. And I, I decided yeah, this is, this is a really cool opportunity. So I came back and I told him, I said, I want them to be 60, um, which is significantly older than I've ever written before. Um, I think my oldest heroine has been in her maybe early thirties. So mm. this was definitely, uh, uh, you know, a departure for me. And I told them I wanted them to be assassins and they were like, cool, cool. And then I said, and I want it to be contemporary. And they were like record scratch. It was like, what? <laughs> um, I think they were mildly terrified of me writing a contemporary because I was hugely terrified of me writing a contemporary. It is, it's, it's just, a, it's a cat of a different color, man. Mm. If you're not used to writing in that voice, then that can just be, I mean, it can be annihilating trying to find that very, very different author voice. And there are people who specialize in one thing and, and who do it well. And I, I had found my historical voice. And so my terror was, what if I don't have a contemporary voice? And it took me a little while to get there. And it did not click for me until I was playing around one day with a scene and I gave it to my husband. I said, hey, read this. Tell me what you think. And he said, it sounds like your Twitter voice. He said, this sounds mm. like you tweeting. And I went, mm -hmm. nailed it this is what I'm doing now <laughs> because I figured out that was what, you know, because I, I, I love Twitter. I have a lot of fun on Twitter, but I thought that's what it needed was that, that kind of, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek, uh, not taking itself too seriously, mm -hmm. uh, vibe is what it needed because there are serious issues going on. You know, it's, it's not always enjoyable to be getting older. Um, it's not always enjoyable to be overlooked or to be undervalued because of your gender or because of, of, you know, the hierarchy of where you work or, you know, to lose out on opportunities or to be forced into situations like retiring and giving up a job that you love just because of the fact that, you know, you, you hit a benchmark birthday. Um, and, yeah. you know, and of course murder is serious. So, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, I thought a good idea to kind of leaven all of that because I, I could not imagine spending months and months and months mired in a book that was going to be dark or it was going to be dense mm -hmm. or too heavy or grim because that's not who I am as a person. That's not what I like to read. That's not how I live. So, uh, I wanted, I, you know, my idea was if I couldn't make it a fun kind of capery, type of thriller, then I didn't want to do it. Um, yeah. It still shocks me though, when like somebody last week referred to me as a contemporary thriller writer and I just, what? <laughs> me? I'm, I'm a huge chicken. I don't, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, again, congrats on the reception. And um, yeah, um, I don't know. I want to talk about the making of the book, of course. And it sounds like you kind of were experimenting with some voices early on and and um, of course, this book, as you mentioned, is a contemporary thriller and um, kind of jumps around in time a little bit at the start to set the stage, which I thought actually was very funny. And the acerbic wit comes through is through and through, and it is very fun um, because because obviously you have a sense of humor about this uh, this kind of caper, uh, as you mentioned. But um, you're saying, oh, I thought one line that that popped out to me that I thought was very funny was. 
I put down my protest signs and stamped out my burning bra and let them make a killer out of me. <laughs> yes. So anyway, talk a little bit about the making of it. And as you said, um, once once you're once you've established um, kind of, you know, all the things and, you know, done whatever research you're going to do and you're rolling, like describe the best uh, writing day for you. How, how does that start? How does it feel, smell, that kind of thing? Are you you getting are you getting up at the crack of dawn are you somebody who writes late into the evening do you, do you like no, a coffee shop no, no, no. setting i'm i'm a i i never write in public and uh i'm a morning person so i i write in the morning you know for me this book had multiple kind of incarnations because i would write it and uh i'd write a draft and send it in and my editor would come back with notes and and they were they were you know she pushed me uh and i wanted her to I wanted the book to be the best that I could make it. And so I said, yeah, I'm, I'm do what you have to do. And she did. And she would come back and I would get the notes and I would go have a good cry. And then I would get back to work. And, you know, we did, we had to do that around the, uh, the Veronica Speedwell books, which is mm -hmm. the, the historical series that I still have running. So I had those on contract and do. So I would, I would fit in different drafts of this book and it, 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 it was evolving every time. The thing that kept me going is every draft, I knew I was getting closer. I knew it was getting better. Um, and so did my editor, you know, she said, big picture, we're getting there. And I know it's taking a while, but I, I can see it. I know it's happening. And I was like, okay, if you say so. <laughs> um, but then finally, it literally did not click for me until 96 hours before the book was due. And I'm wow. talking about the, the drop dead deadline. Like we're going into production. You have to be finished with it. Um, I suddenly, and I don't know why it was that moment where it all finally fell into place. And I, I realized what the structure needed to be because we have a contemporary narrative of what these four 60 year olds are up to. But then we have these other scenes that are flashback scenes to their recruitment, to their yeah. um, earlier missions. And it uh, finally, like I saw it just blinding clarity exactly where they needed to be positioned. And so I had to tear the book apart wow. in order to put them in the right places. And I, I literally had that amount of time to do it in. So for 96 hours, I stayed in my pajamas and I wrote and I <laughs> fell into bed and I woke up and I ate something and I wrote some more and I was absolutely feral. By the time this book was in it, I was disgusting, but it got done. It got done. And, and when I finished it, I was like, okay, I, I have done my absolute best. There is blood on the page at this point, which I don't advocate. Like, this is not a healthy way to work. Like we need balance, um, as writers, but, uh, my editor called me and it's always a weird thing when your editor calls at like six o'clock on a Friday night. Um, oh my. because you know that like you see the name on the caller uh, across your phone on the caller ID and you're like, Oh no, oh, shit. oh this is exactly. And I answered the phone <laughs> and she said, um, I hope you are so proud of this book. And she said, cause you did it. This is it. And uh. I, uh, and then I burst into tears again, but for a completely different reason. Um, and it, yeah, that was, that was when I knew I had, I had finally cracked it, but no, I, I like to work in the morning. And I only ever write for about an hour, hour and a half. Um, but I, and I only write on the computer um, because I, I'm old and I learned how to type back when it was called typing. Um, <laughs> it wasn't keyboarding. There were no, it was an IBM Selectric. 
and my teacher was the golf coach. Uh, and it was great. And I, I, because I can, <laughs> because I can type over a hundred words a minute. And so it, it, you know, just touch typing and it means I can write really fast. So I sit down and, and for me, it's always very cinematic. I'm, I'm watching it happen. Um, and I know exactly what's going to happen. And I sit down and I write, usually I write, um, Usually I write a scene, but if I'm having a really, you know, kind of a slog through the middle, sometimes I will just write to a page quota. Mm. And then I stop because I know exactly then what I'll be doing the next day because I'm only halfway through a scene. Mm-hmm. So it makes it a little bit easier then to to get into the the vibe of what I've got to pick up for the next day. Yeah, interesting. Um, so you're still on the IBM Selectric, I take it. <laughs> No, no, <laughs> okay. no. I Just... wish though. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> That'd be amazing. No, uh, I um, I finally upgraded this year, and and okay. I went. I have gone with all things Apple. Finally, okay. Um, so I'm still learning my way around all of that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good. Um, so uh, coffee, tea, tea, always tea. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, my grandmother was English. So ah, I see. Okay. So... <laughs> It's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing. It is. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, uh, of course, I will point at all the things. Uh, your home base there is DeannaRayburn.com. Uh, you are, and there's a link there to Twitter and Instagram. Um, the Twitter is a lot of fun to follow. Listeners, check that out. The book, of course, Killers of a Certain Age. I thought your peers uh, said some very nice things, um, but I wanted to punch up. Jocelyn Jackson said, uh, National Treasure, Deanna Rayburn never fails to enchant with her signature dry wit, sophisticated storylines, slick twists, and smart, eccentric women who anchor her books. That was very nice for her to say. She called you a national treasure. Yeah, that's been a running joke between us for about <laughs> seven or eight years now. Okay. We, we, we met at a book festival in Dahlonega, Georgia, and we, we just immediately clicked. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of her work, and she's a fan of mine. And it's just, it's really nice when you make those author friendships, and yeah. you're like, oh my God, I like you as much as I like your books. 
And she just looked at me one day and she said, you're just a goddamn national treasure. <laughs> and I, I said, no, you are. And so for, so it just became a running joke that we, that we think of each other as national treasures. And I, I almost, <laughs> di- you know, I, 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 I was going to put it in a book of hers that I blurbed one time. And I was like, no, I can't possibly. And then she went and did it. Uh-huh. And then she went and did it on mine. And I was like, damn you, Jocelyn. She got but you. she's amazing. Yeah. She's a phenomenal writer. So she's, she's one of those, those people who the fact that she likes my stuff, I, I get a little bashful about because I'm like, Oh, 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 Jocelyn Jackson likes my stuff. And, <laughs> and, you know, and, and she is the sort of person she would never in a thousand years blurb a book she doesn't like. She didn't do it just because we're friends and I know where she lives. There's no way. <laughs> okay. That's good to know. Um, <laughs> I thought this library journal start review uh, said something that I was thinking too, but I'll just read this one real quick. Um, fans of Rayburn's Veronica Speedwell, historical mysteries will enjoy this well plotted story and a thriller featuring four skilled, well trained women is a treat in a male-dominated genre. A fast-paced, explosive, fun novel reminiscent of the 2010 movie Red. And immediately when I re- had started reading the book and read um, some of the reviews, I was thinking myself uh, of Helen Mirren in that uh, fantastic role, you know, as the retired um, assassin. But yeah, you you obviously have exploded this uh, uh, milieu. But yeah, um, talk about what's next because this seems like... It could be a series. Obviously, um, you'll have to to elaborate on that, and we don't want to give any spoilers. But is uh, Hollywood sniffing around? You know, um, I I've been instructed that all I can say is discussions are happening and people are talking. <laughs> um, I I yeah, there has there has definitely been talk, and and there are ongoing discussions. And the one thing I can say is. Uh, Right off the bat, as soon as the arcs were available, I got an email on a Saturday night at, at like seven o'clock from um, a producer who put out a, a movie that I absolutely loved. And he was like, this book is brilliant. And I was like, oh, my God. And he was like, oh, I'm so and so. And I produced and I was thinking to myself, I know who you are. Too. <laughs> um, but yeah, there 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 has absolutely been some interest and in, and we're having some lovely discussions. And and I hope it I hope eventually things work out and, and this does come to pass. Um, you know, getting something adapted is always just it's it's such a crapshoot and it can mm. go awry at any stage sure. of, uh, of the development. But this is something I would absolutely love to see happen because I feel like it would lend itself to it really well. And honestly, I would just love to see four 60 year old women kicking ass yeah. on screen. I mean, I think that would be so much fun. Yeah. And I think, I think with some of the, uh, interstitial stuff that you mentioned, kind of these flashbacks, I almost kind of had imagined like a Quentin Tarantino vibe. Well, I mean, I would, I would love to see everything kind of under the direction of, uh, of a female production company with a female mm-hmm. director, you know, and I, sure. I think too, we've got, well, there's huge scope there because you've got the four 60 year old women, but then you've got them as 20 year olds. And then you've got a couple of other characters who are involved as well. I think altogether, we've probably got like 12 or 13 roles for, for, Mm-hmm. women and i'm trying to think of the last time a film came out with quite that many roles for women uh where they're doing something that would be you know this much fun where they get to go out and you know they they don't have to stand around and wait for for some dude to show up in a in a superhero cape we'll, we'll be looking for that news on that we'll follow the twitter i'm sure that um 
when some things actually concretize that you will be sharing, I hope. I will shout it from the rooftop. <laughs> so uh, you've got other were you know other running series and ip um talk about um like what you're working on presently and then uh what's next for you well i am uh currently working on i just put book eight in the veronica speedwell series to bed and i'm getting ready to start writing veronica nine and i have a couple of other projects in discussion with my publishers so lots of fun stuff coming down the pike and uh, you know, they're, they're not going to let me rest and I don't want to. So everybody's happy. <laughs> Very cool. Um, all right. One quick fun one for you. If you could have dinner with any author from any era to your favorite place in the world, and yes, you can bring Joshua in, who would you take? <laughs> where would you take them? I would probably, you know, on the one hand, I'm thinking Jane Austen because girlfriend needed to get out a little bit, but, um, <laughs> I, 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 I gotta say probably Afro Ben. Um, because she was a, um, she was a playwright who was also a spy, um, in the restoration court of Charles II. And I feel like I, I would like to take her out for margaritas because <laughs> I feel like she would have just the most amazing stories. Very cool. Uh, all right. I'll buy the guacamole and the chips. Excellent. You're invited. Also. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom. If you had like just one pearl of wisdom to drop on your fellow scribes on just how to persevere, I mean, you've had this incredibly prolific career, but of course you've experienced some adversity yourself. What would you just drop? Um, really to trust yourself because, you know, kind of to paraphrase Dr. Spock, you know more than you think you do. Um, and if you if you look too much to other people for advice, all they know, like all I can tell you about being a writer is how I do it and what works for me. And that doesn't mean that if you do it differently, that what you're doing is wrong. You know, it's such an idiosyncratic art and everybody has to be an artist in their own way. So if I ever drop a piece of advice and somebody finds it's useful, great. If it's not useful, man, throw it out. Love it. Thank you again. Best of luck with everything. And we hope you come back in the future and wrap with us again. I know you got to get going. So we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Your attention, please. The museum will be closing in 10 minutes. Any security officer can direct you to an exit. We hope you have enjoyed your visit. If you expect me to tell you the name of the organization I work for, stop listening right now. It's a secret. So secret, in fact, that those of us who work there never use the official title. We always refer to it as the museum. And we use museum nomenclature to make it a little less obvious to anybody listening in that our job is to eliminate people who need killing. The men and women who established the museum were an international conglomeration of former SOE and OSS agents, French, Polish, and Dutch resistance, and a few of the leftover monuments men who had secured the art collections of Europe while stormtroopers stomped their way around the continent. Basically, everyone who wanted to go hunting Nazis and didn't have a mandate from their government got together and decided to write their own. They were the oddballs and eccentrics, the quirky ones who made brilliant leaps in logic and didn't so much go by the book as fling it out the window. They hunted former members of the Third Reich, everyone from Hitler's shoeshine boy to Treblinka guards. 
through Brazilian jungles, Buenos Aires, whorehouses, and villas outside Pretoria. They wrote down every last one they could find. When they'd exhausted their list of Nazis to bring to justice, they had turned to others. Dictators, arms dealers, drug smugglers, and sex traffickers. It was the Wild West with no law but natural justice. And I suppose those were the good old days. Not entirely, of course. The museum, for all its high-minded principles, has been a little slow on social justice. But at least when we joined, there was a hum in the air. The electric fizz of anticipation, of knowing you were doing something worthwhile and doing it better than anybody else. That's how they got me, of course. They found me in college with my jeans embroidered with peace signs, and they dangled the bait of changing history. I was recruited in late 1978, along with Mary Alice, Helen, and Natalie, as part of Project Sphinx, the first all-female squad. I put down my protest signs and stamped out my burning bra and let them make a killer out of me. Helen doesn't like that word. But I always ask her, why bother with anything else? It's simple and true. We kill for a living, a good living in case you're interested, with a solid base salary, bonuses, and benefits, including full dental and a pension. And we kill who we're told, and only who we're told. Let's get that clear right up front. We're not sociopaths. We don't murder for fun or for free. We kill to get paid. Now, Mary Alice loves her idealism and still clings to the notion of us murdering people who need killing in order to improve society. That was the official line when we were recruited. And even though times have changed, more computers and pencil pushers doing cost-benefit analyses, that part is not negotiable. We only kill people who are specifically targeted by the museum for extermination. And we don't freelance, ever. We don't murder on our days off any more than a thoracic surgeon will cut your rib cage open for kicks. We have standards. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to Writer files.fm for more that's writerfiles.fm can you hear me i can can you hear me <laughs> okay were you hear me swearing at my computer I, I was not i heard dead silence and i was oh, like good. oh it's gonna be one of those podcasts <laughs>